This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I want to talk about collections uh, as a curator of a deep sea, primarily deep sea collection of invertebrate animals uh, and how the collections work at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, briefly run through what we have there and how we've uh, done some work in engaging with the public in an area that's kind of difficult uh, for, the, for many people in the public to really relate to. And then I'll segue into another project that uh, tries to really directly relate people in a science project that we're doing and how we've been able to to try and engage with a large community of people and that, that's in Australia that I'll wrap up with. So what you're seeing here, if you're interested, is a, a very deep sea view of uh, invertebrate animals uh, that are called scale worms and these are living more than two miles deep uh, in Mexico off La Paz and uh, we were fortunate enough to be able to video them alive and one of the key tools we have I think to engage with the public is the ability now to bring wonderful imagery and so this is a species that I'll come back to later on that we recently named Uh, and we were able to then get out the information about what really are just worms uh, to a very wide audience of people by tagging some interesting things about them, such as the fighting behavior you're seeing here, and then by having a really great nickname for them, which is uh, the Elvis worms, and I'll come back to them later. Uh, but before that, I want to go through the different collections that are for biological samples that we hold at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, how we uh, use those collections and then relate to the public and try and get them to understand the importance of collections in general. And uh, then I'll move into uh, citizen science and how we're, we're using that with a project that's been running now. We've just had our second birthday and it's called uh, Sea Dragon Search. And then, then I'll finish up. So the Scripps Oceanographic Collections, of which there are four, uh, cover a range of animal collections and then we have a large geological collection as well. And I'm the curator, as uh, George introduced me, as the, uh, the benthic invertebrate curator. And we hold uh, these um, at Scripps for posterity. These are samples, hundreds of thousands of samples that are there for future researchers as well as being researched in time now. Uh, the University of California actually has many, many collections, and we're just part of a large group of collections of all sorts of objects that are really held in trust for the future. And I feel it's a really great responsibility and privilege of mine to be able to look after this collection. Uh, and I'll just briefly tell you about each one and the value that they hold. So the pelagic invertebrate collection are those kind of uh, invertebrate animals that uh, float or swim in the plankton. And this is curated by Moira Decima, a professor at Scripps. And What's great about our collections is we also have collection managers who do the real uh, job of maintaining them. The pelagic invertebrate collection, all the red dots there show you where samples have come from around the world. And as you would imagine, it's heavily concentrated in the Eastern Pacific. The pelagic invertebrate collection is very important because it has, among other things, a regular sampling of 
the east western coast of the United States and down into Mexico, dating back to the late 1940s. And those archival samples, uh, and here you can see the holdings uh, and the way we've got them organised now compared with the way they were in the past, have been used to give various kinds of snapshots going back in the past uh, for questions that when they were first collected, no one had any idea about them. And for instance, now one of the interesting projects that we're looking at is DDT in archival samples and pelagic samples are going to turn out to be very interesting uh, for that basis. We then have the marine vertebrate collection, otherwise known as fishes, and this dates back to 1944. And Carl Hubbs set that up and we currently don't have a curator. We've gone through the process of hiring a new professor and we're hoping that she'll be joining us sometime in 2023. Uh, but in the meantime, the collection manager, Ben Frabel, has been ably managing the collection while we wait for a new curator. And the, the uh, fish collection has thousands of samples as well. It's especially well represented with deep sea fishes. And we're hoping our new creator is going to come in and really be able to exploit and expand the sampling of wonderful deep sea creatures that we hold there. Then there's the collection that I curate, and I'm fortunate to have Charlotte Seed as the collection manager. And we have uh, hundreds of thousands of specimens as well, uh, representing over 7,000 species. And benthic means living on the sea floor. So this is corals and sponges and uh, snails and all sorts of animals that you would find living attached to the bottom. And we've got um, really an emphasis that I've made since arriving at Scripps is to set up an archival set of samples that can be used for DNA analysis. And this has really been burgeoning in the 15 years that I've been building the collection, as well as uh, describing lots of new species. And these uh, species identifying specimens that are called holotypes. We've really expanded on that basis. And I'll talk a bit about naming species as part of our engagement process in a minute. And here you can see our sampling. Again, it's heavily uh, biased towards the, off the western coast of America. Uh, but we go down and we have a lot of sampling of cent Central America. We've got some big research programs working off Costa Rica, and then also a very rich uh, Antarctic collection. We've tended to focus on extreme environments of the deep sea, such as methane seeps and whale falls. And uh, one of our key goals is to integrate imagery of animals with the identification of the preserved animals, and then often linking those with DNA reference sequences. And we're um, really trying to make this data, as, as are all of the collections, in an online format so that anyone can search our collection and find out about our specimens without actually having to physically come and visit us here. And we're more than happy to loan specimens out to people, so we send samples out to people around the world all the time. Uh, and that's one of the uh, public service relations of our collections. And we benefit by having experts look at our samples and provide us feedback on what we're holding. So as I said, we really focus in my collection on, on the deep sea in strange habitats that often people have never heard of, uh, hydrocarbon or methane seeps, uh, organic falls such as when a dead whale dies and floats down to the sea floor and is then colonised by all sorts of strange creatures, uh, wood. We also studied what happens to wood when it falls to the seafloor and uh, really amazing ecosystems called hydrothermal vents. 
So we, we have these amazing collections, but the, the, the trick is how do we really get the message out there that they're, they're not just for research, uh, but also to try and uh, get people to come and visit and see what we have. So we do arrange tours, but we don't actually have a very um, accessible collections. They're not open to the public except by arrangement. So one of the things that we set up a few years ago in association with the Birch Aquarium at Scripps was a, uh, a highlights of the collections. And these are, are still around if you're here in San Diego and you haven't visited the Birch Aquarium, I encourage you to do so and see our oddities exhibit, which really took some of our gems, some of our most precious specimens and puts them on display with stories about what we have down there. Uh, and... Um, that has been a very successful exhibit and we've uh, changed out and put in new specimens when uh, new ones arrive, such as a recent story about a giant anglerfish that washed ashore and that's now one of the, the highlights at the Bodies Oddities exhibit. One of the other things that we do to highlight biodiversity is to really inform people that, uh, especially in the ocean, but certainly also on land, there are many, many new species still to discover. So uh, I really think of my privileged role to be a biodiversity discoverer. And in the course of our expeditions and sampling, even here in La Jolla, we are constantly finding new species. And uh, I then, uh, one of the roles that I do is to name these species. So that means that you end up giving them a Latin name, uh, a hyphenated, uh, sorry, a name like our human species name is Homo sapiens. And, and so every species, when it's formally named, has to has, have this double name of a genus and a species. And here you can see a picture of a species that is hugely abundant here off uh, California, but had not been recognised as a new species until 2020. And uh, it's called now Chytopterus dewey C after a, a, a woman, uh, Dewey White, who's been a great supporter of our collections. And we, we have this program where people can engage with having species named after themselves or for their loved ones or for a, uh, uh, something that's special in their lives. And uh, we have this on the Scripps website if you're interested. It's called the Name a Species Program. And for a relatively small amount that goes towards the um, costs associated with naming the species and to support the collections, will then uh, go in and uh, name the species and give a, uh, the species name um, for a woman, for a man. Here is My uh, Katijus Myron Feinberg. This was bought by Myron's wife for his 80th birthday. So we named it Myron Feinberg. I, this is named for Paul Brooks, this species. This is named for Robert Scripps for the funding he provided over the course of his life. Uh, this is Jeff Ruoko, named for Jeff by his wife. Uh, this is uh, a beautiful deep sea mussel, uh, named for Robert Erloff by his daughter. Uh, this sometimes we uh, gift species names to people. Uh, this was a present to the Dalai Lama that we named for him in honor of his 80th birthday. And this actually involves quite a lot of work to name a species. You have to formally describe them in scientific papers that go through um, peer review. And we've used this program. We routinely name 10 to 20 species a, a year out of my lab. 
but many people just really don't know of this, that, that this thousands of species are being named every year and that really we have many, many species still to name and that sadly many species, particularly on land, are being lost uh, due to loss of habitat uh, before we really get, get a chance to name them. And I really think that naming species allows them to be recognised as real. And uh, so I've really put an effort into naming those in, in my career. And then we really try and get the word out that these species are there to be named and are being named. So the latest one that really made a media impact, uh, a group that we had been seeing for many years, since 2004, and then we'd always given them the nickname of Elvis worms because of these remarkable shiny scales that they have on their back that were reminiscent of the kind of late career phase uh, jumpsuits that, and the sequins that he would wear. And over the years, we collected many of these along the Western Pacific, and we made an evolutionary tree of them uh, based on DNA. And we re then realized that these Elvis worms comprised actually a bunch of different species. And so along with a student of mine, Avery, uh, we then went through the process of formally naming these after some distinguished women scientists that I know, Victoria Orphan at Caltech and Shana Gofridi at Occidental College, as well, uh, of course, as naming one after Elvis himself, which we called Elvis I. And uh, this was published in 2020. And we then did a press release uh, and were recognised um, with a lot of media coverage but also uh, there are some programs out there that try and highlight some of the special species that are named in any one year. So there's the top 10 marine species of a year are, are named by a program called LifeWatch and they picked out our worm as one of the top 10. Uh, and then the media coverage that we got was really, uh, really quite wonderful, partly because these worms are quite engaging with the beautiful, beautiful imagery that we got from them while they were still alive. Uh, and then the, the link with the story. So we think that this was an opportunity to really get the message out there to people that, that there are so many new species and particularly engaging people with the deep sea is one of the real uh, ideas that we want to do in my work at, as the Benthic Curator. I'm just going to finish, though, on another project that we're talking about, which is in science, citizen science, where people can directly engage with our research. And the trick to in doing this is finding a program that people will really want to be interested in. It's common to have people who want to volunteer and help with research, but we wanted to engage with a lot of people. And our program for this is called Sea Dragon Search. And these are about a wonderful fish that live, two different species that I'll really focus on, that live along the coast of southern Australia. They're only found in Australia, but you may have seen these. They're on display at the Birch Aquarium or at other aquariums around the world. And these fish are emblems of their habitat, uh, which are kelp forests and seagrasses. And we have done a lot of work on them. The two species, the, the uh, leafy sea dragon lives in a more restricted range along southern Australia, while the common or weedy sea dragon has the blue range there all along southern Australia and as well as around Tasmania. And we have done a lot of genetics on these animals. So we have gone sampling the fish where we took the fish uh, while scuba diving and snipped off a little bit of tissue 
because there was no knowledge about one, how many species there were, or whether these populations were structured in any way, and if we could identify any of these populations that might be of particular conservation interest. So that work has now been published, and we're, we're writing up uh, new information that will be about sea dragon conservation status. And so while we have this baseline of genetic data, we decided that our next step would be to engage people to come and help us in the public. And sea dragons, as you can see from this picture, are really beautiful. And scuba divers in southern Australia take photos of these all the time. We see these on Instagram all the time. And we decided that we would engage people to provide us with their photographs. And what is great about sea dragons is they have individual spot patterns that allow them to be identified to individual. So this was allowing us, rather than doing more genetic work, to actually use photographs to get an idea of the long-term identification of sea dragons and allow for conservation planning. Um, and also using this project, we have a PhD student at the University of Western Australia who's using this to try and understand how people engage and why, what their motivations are in doing citizen science. So she'll be based in Perth in Western Australia uh, she'll, Chrissy Tusterson will be doing surveys and interviews of people and has been doing that already for over a year. And we really want to provide with Sea Dragon Search a place where people who really care about sea dragons can engage and, and meet each other and also learn more about the marine environment because we see these sea dragons as sentinels of their sea dragon habitat. And if they start to change in their numbers over the decade that we plan to follow them, that'll really be an idea for what's going on for conservation planners in Australia. So we've partnered with Wild Me. These are the people that provide the uh, artificial intelligence platform. Citizen scientists provide us with their images. They're then processed and give us uh, a way of identifying sea dragons to individuals either as a novel individual or a way of telling us that we've got the same sea dragon through time. And what's been really wonderful, in just two years, we've had 8,000 encounters with sea dragons sent to us with uh, over um, nearly 2,000 uh, weedy sea dragons or common sea dragons have been identified and nearly 250 uh, leafy sea dragons. So the engagement's been really wonderful. We have a uh, Sea Dragon Search Instagram page and Chrissy Tustinson maintains that. And to keep community engagement, we have prizes for the person who observes the first, first male sea dragon each season uh, with broods on his tail. Um, the photographers and submitters who provide us with the most information uh, in a given month. So some of we have some very engaged people who are providing us with lots of images. Uh, and this data has been really uh, quite amazing. Uh, we are now able to track sea dragons over years, uh, information that otherwise would have been very difficult and time-consuming. But these are photographs from different people, um, and the algorithms are just wonderful in providing us this information. So we see this as going to be a really incredible resource for learning about sea dragons and providing a lot of information for people in Australia. And we hope for the citizen science community there to be really engaged in what we're doing. So I thank you for your time and I'm uh, happy to take any of your questions. Well, great. Thank you so much for, for a, a great overview. I guess 
we can get started in, in talking a little bit where you left off with thinking about the, the sea dragons. I think for folks who haven't seen these at the Birch Aquarium who can, I, I would definitely encourage them to, 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 to do that. I don't know if it still does for you, but I remember the first time it inspired a sense of awe <laughs> in seeing these, 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 these creatures. Yeah, well, I was uh, uh, really, I, I have never worked on fish. And um, as you might tell from my accent, I'm from Australia. And I, back in the 2000s, was living and working in Adelaide, which is in the middle of southern Australia, and did a scuba dive there and saw both species of sea dragons. I was lucky there's a place you can go when you can see them. And I wondered uh, who was researching on these and uh, doing any genetic work and, and uh, realized that uh, no one was. So uh, left my invertebrate uh, world with some collaborators and we got some funding from National Geographic to do an initial genetic survey. And I soon after then moved to Scripps and really decided I'd like to keep that project going. Uh, partly for the reasons that I outlined in the talk, that they're just such an en engaging group of animals, but also that they do, rather than a lot of animals that we study that are part of the community, uh, sea dragons are, are in a way sentinels if their habitat is really disturbed and lost. And we are seeing this with kelp forests. As we know in the US, kelp forests are under uh, threat from warming waters, the same is happening in Australia, and we're concerned that sea dragon habitat will be lost. Well, apart from monitoring them kelps themselves, you can also, we hope, monitor the sea dragons. And after our initial genetic work, which has, has come out and has, um, I didn't really have time to explain what our genetics has told us, but um, one of the, the great things that happened has happened in the last 15 years is the incredible development of bioinformatics and DNA sequencing technology. It's largely been driven out of medical science, but we who do other kinds of biology are, are benefiting from that in terms of cheap DNA sequencing. And, and we really understand sea dragon population genetics now very well uh, to the point that we can understand what happened to them through sea level rises owing to changes uh, and declines owing to ice ages over the last two million years. So we've got all of that amazing background information, but now uh, we think we can move forward best by having the public help us out with their images. And, uh, and we've been really very happy with the level of engagement that we've had so far. And I would say that uh, we're even happy to accept people sending us photographs of, of sea dragons in Aquaria that they see them around the world so we can actually document where sea dragons are in Hong Kong, in Lisbon, in, in, uh, here in San Diego, in Georgia, all sorts of places have them on display. So anybody who wants to send their pictures, uh, just look up seadragonsearch.org and you're able to do that. Uh, and, and I think that's so so neat how you how you piece those things together. I think one with the start of your interest, right, and actually being out in in the environment and, and seeing them, and then scaling up with the different tools that you had to be able to to, to explore them. And then I think one of the things that I think is really impressive, and, and I think a, a lot of people have a growing interest in, is that interface with the with the public using very sophisticated uh, tools in terms of imagery and combining that with with, with the genetics. Now, I'm wondering, right, what challenges that you anticipate that other people who might want to engage people in similar work, maybe in this country or other country, 
or other work with non-professionals, folks that have an interest, at least a, a peaking interest, that want to get involved. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the challenges and the rewards of working with, with non-scientists, per se. Yes, we're interested in what motivates people to engage in citizen science. And there's often people will want to volunteer after, say, they've finished their normal career or and they've retired and they have time available. Um, or they're deeply passionate about a particular topic and they want to, and but they might not have the formal training to do so, but they want to contribute. Uh, the, the trick is to find ways that they can contribute that is fulfilling for them and also um, can be accommodated by the science research program. And, and that can be challenging to find the right um, uh, balance there that clicks and works for both groups. So for us, we were fortunate in that we had this photographic program. And I, I will say that we modeled ours on several other programs. So Wild Me, uh, who has this, um, is the company who has this project called Wild Book. And they initially started doing uh, a project where people could photograph the tails of whales and they could identify whales off their tails or manta rays or zebras uh, cheetahs, all of large terrestrial or very large uh, fish or mammals that people just often will want to photograph. And so it, it might be, it was a way of easily engaging because people often have these photographs and they, when there are enough of them are gathered, they become scientifically valued. And an individual person might think, well, my images aren't really of very much use. But if there's a forum for them to contribute, then suddenly the date information, where they took the photo, all of that uh, adds to a data set that could turn out to be really important in the future. Now, there are there are other kind of programs. One is called iNaturalist uh, that's available with an online data uh, source where people can directly contribute their own images or go in and help identify things. Uh, so... There might be lots of images that are just sitting there and no one knew what they were. And, and a, someone who uh, thinks they know what it is can contribute an identification. And then over time, that will gradually be validated. So there, there are these opportunities online, especially using images where people can really contribute, I think. Yeah, I was, you know, I'm, I'm not a naturalist in the position, but really was impressed by, by a naturalist. I'm glad you brought that up. I remember talking to to another parent and um and their kid. I was impressed about how many uh, organisms just out and about they know. And I was trying to help my son figure out what a lizard was, and realized that I was looking through books and, and I couldn't find it. And I asked him, "How did you know what that was when you go out in nature? Right, your son thinks you're good at naming these things." And he said, "I put it into iNaturalist, <laughs> right?" And so started to do that. And so neat, right? Allowing to your location being on the coast or where you are, that uh, immediate feedback you, you get and um, such rich data, right? That would just be so extensive if I tried to become a, a specialist in whatever given organization, you know, organism that we're working with. So I thought that was uh, <laughs> such a neat thing. I'm glad that you share that. And then interesting to see how us as individuals, you know, not necessarily having to commit to a long-term project and still contributing meaningful, meaningful ways. As you said, there's still discoveries to be made with organisms, right, and in and around our environment. Yes, for the the sea dragons, we we didn't know really how long they live in the wild, 
And the photographs are going to be fundamentally important to give us a whole new idea. We already know they live much longer than people had previously thought because of people providing us with archival uh, sets of photos that they had. What's really interesting is there are some people who, be, who become super engaged and we call them super users who provide us with regularly are providing with, with photographs, but then also people who just contribute once. Uh, and we're happy to take any of these. Uh, uh, and the forum is there to allow people at any level of contribution to, to work. And, and they will get um, feedback from us. If you submit a photo, even if you only submit one photo, um, you'll be told if that animal that they photographed, if the fish they saw has been sighted again. And that also gives them engagement and feedback and knowing progress has been happening in terms of that particular fish. And, and we've got other ways of engaging with people that to fund this project, which we want to go for over a decade, we allow people to sponsor individual fish, for instance, uh, and give the fish a name and we give them a certificate. So there's other ways to kind of value add onto this because uh, we really want this project to run for over a decade. Anthony, I, some of the questions that are coming in, we can, we can go through some of them, maybe not necessarily in the order that they've come in, but maybe as we, we tack on to some of the issues. Um, I think uh, one person brings up, and I'll read a quote, sometimes one reads of washed up fish or animals on the beach. Are you interested in looking at such bodies who ought to be contacted? Sometimes you see these pictures on Instagram. Yes, as as for regards to the collection, um, all of us, uh, the collection managers and the curators, are regularly contacted by the public uh, when the, a strange thing washes ashore. If it's a fish that, of course, is rooted to the, the fish collection, uh, if it's a strange kind of jelly or a strange blob that washes up, it'll be addressed to uh, us in the either of the invertebrate collections. And we sometimes get um, very excited and we'll ask the person to put it in their freezer if they manage to collect it, or we'll actually go and help them recover it. Um, so the, the amazing gigantic anglerfish that washed ashore uh, a few months ago made the media and that fish was recovered and is now on display and will become part of the uh, marine vertebrate collection. And every now and then there are strange, after a storm particularly, there'll be something washed ashore that no one has seen before. And, and usually we're able to identify that for them. Uh, and, and we're very happy to do so. So through the media department at Scripps is often the, the email link uh, uh, and then they pass it on, on to us. And we don't tend to trawl through the images on Instagram, but normally people send us directly the photos and we'll help out um, and, and give the names to them. Right. I think this is a, a similar question. Um, do you take any fish in your collection, even if it is freshwater? Uh, we, we're pretty careful about what we take. So, uh, we often want very good information about the organism and that it's been preserved in the right way. But for instance, uh, the sea dragons, uh, in Australia, they often wash ashore and there's a program there to, uh, engage with people about documenting them. We take photos of those, the dried up sea dragons. Uh, here in for the collections related to California, uh, if someone's interested in donating to us, we direct them to the collections manager and we'll often have a conversation about the collection. 
often people contact us about large shell collections for us, for our collection at Benthic Invertebrates, for instance. And we, we may take those on the condition that the each shell has got real information about where it was collected. Um, and so if there's really good uh, data about them, we're certainly able to take those samples. Um, yeah, we're not restricted to just uh, marine. We, I certainly have got freshwater specimens in our collection as well. Uh, it's, it's always something that's a, a subject of discussion. And, and uh, I, I can't guarantee we take everything. We often do decline samples if there's not enough information about the specimens. Right. And then um, pivoting back to, 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 uh, to sea dragons, um, one of the questions is some sea creatures migrate over long distances, uh, e.g. tunas. Others may stay close to where they are born. What's known about sea dragons in this respect? There was a very good study uh, where the scientists in Australia um, put some little fluorescent tattoos on the sea dragon uh, so that when they shone a, a blue light on them, the fish would glow and they did a little uh, little code so that they could track the fish. And another project where people put little transponders on the fish and were able to find them and the information that came out of that about sea dragons is pretty much they have a home range and over the course of their life, they might not move more than uh, out of an area over 100 yards. So they, they, they don't swim very well, although it is remarkable when you watch one uh, that, they, that they can swim at all. They just use their little fins to swim on their dorsal fin on their back and their little pectoral fins on their sides. Uh, that said, they can be moved around by storms. And the genetics tells us that they do migrate. Uh, and But it's just in the context of an individual normally over their lifetime. Their father broods them and they're released by the father when they're little juveniles. And then they're not able to really disperse very much at all. But they grow up usually in their the range where their father and mother lived. And then under some highly unusual events, a big storm, something might happen and a dispersal might happen, we would think probably for, for adults, and they might be moved a few hundred metres uh, from where they might have been born. But we don't see large-scale uh, dispersal events. We don't see that in the genetics, and we don't see that in the sea dragon search data that we have now. Mostly a fish that's photographed is photographed in the same area for its entire life. And the thing with uh, migrations and the way that populations disperse, it only takes a rare individual to disperse to really take that genetic signature to a new population. So even if it's one every 100 years, uh, that can be enough to um, transfer uh, genetic information from one population to another. One thing to remember about Australia is 10,000 years ago, Tasmania was connected to Australia. Um, the thing called Bass Strait now that, that is an open ocean is only 100 metres deep. The last glacial maximum 10,000 years ago, there was land there. And that was how actually Aboriginal people colonised Tasmania from the mainland by walking over that land bridge. And then the sea level rose with the last glacial uh, maximum finishing and, and global warming uh, of the interglacial 
period starting and sea levels um, then rose as ice melted. And all of that habitat now has sea dragons in it. And so sea dragons had to colonise that area again, and they did it over, we think, over a period of a few thousand years, very slowly migrating slowly across the range. And the genetics actually tells us that they came from the west and migrated to the east rather than coming from the east and migrating to the west. It's neat <laughs> you're pulling that together uh, for us and helping to, to get a, a good sense of that. What uh, One of the questions, or I guess two of the questions um, that I want to get to that are related, one, it sounds like an educator, uh, says, do you have middle or high school student programs? Do you have internships for those students? Do you have any programs for outreach to the South Bay, Barrio Logan, or minor minority population kids? Yes, uh, we, the challenge for us uh, as a research institution is having children, having minors on site. Uh, so that's a, a, a real challenge for us to often uh, to do that in any in keeping the children uh, safe and monitored in a correct way. Uh, that said, we regularly have tours and we bring in uh, school groups from all over San Diego to see our collections. And school children are often, of course, many of them visit the Birch Aquarium. Uh, we have various of our um, research grants often include outreach programs for individual classes. So we've made classes for the San Diego School District that are then provided. Uh, so we do lesson plans with school teachers, uh, say, on a deep sea habitat like methane seeps, and that then becomes offered to all um, San Diego, say, uh, junior classes, junior high school classes to offer the, the resources to do that program, uh, that lesson on site. Uh, and when schools reach out to us to provide tours, we do offer them. Internships are more challenging for us because of the um, restrictions on, on minors. And we, we kind of have a policy that we want to pay um, students if they're engaging in our collections for equity issues. So we, we tend to limit our internships for volunteers these days and really focus more on trying to pay people. Uh, and so we, we really, um, I have funds set aside to allow university students to be paid to work in the collections. And that's really our goal um, now in terms of engagement with students. Uh, so I would say in answer to that question about high school and middle school, mostly it's going to be via tours or seeing if there are lesson plans or entities like the Ocean Discovery Institute where Scripps has got uh, research engagement with that place provided um, outreach opportunities for, for middle and high schools. Convoluted answer, but I hope that kind of gets to what, what we do. Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's super helpful. Um, kind of as we were speaking beforehand, I, I think the the work of of research institutions and the way they engage it's complicated, right? From the way that we hire to the way that we we teach, and so I think that's that, that's super helpful. It talks about the complexity and some of the challenges that we're facing um, and thinking from things from pay to 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 how we choose, right? Who participates? So I think that I, I think that's super helpful, and I appreciate that. Uh, one of um, one of the questions asked: Can you comment on similar ocean, oceanographic institutes on the east coast of the of, of the U.S.? 
the the one that immediately comes to mind is Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts, uh, a little bit south of Boston, uh, and at the same place uh, there in uh, at Woods Hole is the Marine Biological Laboratory. So there's a double institution there, and that's uh, a, a major Woods Hole's a major deep sea research institute, and they have a, a graduate program associated with uh, MIT. There are other marine institutes. There's the Virginia Institute of Marine Science uh, in Virginia, of course. There's the Rosenstiel School of Marine Sciences uh, based in Miami. Uh, there is, uh, I'm just trying to think, there's the, the Skidaway Marine Institute in Georgia. Uh, there's the... Um, uh, the Duke University has a marine centre in Beaufort in North Carolina. Uh, and those are the ones that immediately come to mind um, as top research institutions to, to look up if you're interested on the East Coast. Great. Thank you. One of the next questions is, we've heard of super tankers or tankers carrying species in bilge water to other places. Have sea dragons been seen elsewhere? Yeah, good good question uh, about the the transport of of marine species around the world. It's it's become a, a huge issue. Uh, we tend to call them invasive species, and and tracking out this path of invasion can be really challenging. Uh, often, some people will notice something is in place, and uh, it could be that it was never seen or noticed before. Uh, or it could really be something that's invaded. And often takes a little bit of detective work to really figure that out. Uh, as I said, we're always discovering and naming new species. And whether it's really a native or something that might have arrived there is often one of the things that we do under due diligence. Uh, and the vector for this is often ships uh, carrying either um, animals living on the hull or in parts of the ship bottom places where anchors go or chains might be uh, held are places, or as is in the question, bilge water, ballast water that's sucked into the ship in one port uh, in order to weigh the ship down properly. And then they arrive in another port and they need to take on cargo and then they dump that ballast water out that they've transported across the ocean. And that might have had the babies of other species from that place and suddenly they're able to live in a new place that they would never have been able to get to otherwise. So can sea dragons do this? Uh, it's never been found because the male sea dragon carries the babies on his tail. So a whole sea dragon would have to have been taken up into the ballast water and have lived for the journey to then be dumped out. Uh, so it, it hasn't happened. And we're not aware of any sea dragons having been found outside of Australia, except uh, in aquariums, other aquariums. Now, there's certainly stories of aquariums. Uh, the famous example are lionfish, where they're a, a fish that is popular with aquarists, and they're from um, the Pacific Ocean, but after a, a hurricane in Florida, some of these lionfish were released into the Atlantic and have become a major problem in the Caribbean uh, where they just eat so many other fish. 
and the lionfish are actually now migrating up the United States east coast and they're becoming more tolerant of the cold water. They're, they're really a tropical fish, but they're gradually migrating north as they adapt to the colder water. And this is a huge issue uh, in terms of conservation movement of species around the world as not just with the land, but with, with the ocean is, is really a problem that humans have created. Great, thank you. I'm curious as, as, as uh, we're, we're, we're coming closer to a, to a close, if you could tell us a little bit about how you got started uh, in, in marine biology. My dad was uh, in the Navy and uh, we lived by the sea uh, as I was growing up and uh, he liked to catch fish. And so initially I learned how to catch fish, but I actually began to get more and more engaged in the fish and their behavior themselves. And so at a fairly early age at 12, I, I remember thinking that would be what I wanted to do is marine biology. And not that I really understood what it was, um, but I remember being given a, a book as a prize in, in, in uh, junior high school um, about um, the ocean world. And that really stimulated my interest. And I often think that I didn't have a good imagination in some ways to think of other careers as I went through high school. Um, but in the end, I started university in Australia in, in zoology with an interest in marine biology. And I have to say, I was fortunate in Australia growing up when I did because we were able to indulge these kind of ideas and that I was allowed to have a free university education. Uh, and if I'd been under other under circumstances um, where having to pay the extremely high tuition you see now in so many places, I, I don't know if I would have done marine biology. So I count myself as very fortunate to have been able to do marine biology. And I, I certainly encourage people if they're interested in that as a career, uh, that it's a certainly possible. Like many other careers, there are there is a lot of competition, but I also always encourage someone, if this is your dream, that, that you should be able to pursue it and uh, find the right mentors to help you and to give you the information that you need to, to undertake it. Oh, great. Oh, thank you um, for sharing. I, we, we haven't had much time to talk about whale falls. I don't know if there's something that you want to share with the audience. I think that's something I, I found so impressive and didn't really um, appreciate before um, learning more about what you do. Yeah, whale falls are really the reason I moved to the United States. I was uh, pretty happy working in fairly shallow waters in Australia. We don't have a lot of deep sea technology that we have here in, in the United States. And I was contacted about some strange animals that had been found living on a dead whale. Now, we, we've heard about whales washing ashore. Tragically, when a school of whales might come ashore or a whale has died from being hit by a ship and washing ashore, um, and so there were researchers working on this more from the perspective than being natural. And that when a whale dies, it might float for a while, but most of them end up eventually sinking to the sea floor, transporting thousands of pounds of, of, uh, of meat and bones to the sea floor. And amazingly, there are whole communities of bacteria and animals that are actually adapted to exploiting this. So it's like ocean floor can actually be in many places really analogous to a desert. And suddenly this enormous amount of 
of food arrives that represents thousands of years of food that would otherwise have gotten there normally. And so there are amazing creatures that exploit the flesh, such as sharks, hagfish, um, but then also whalebone is very rich in oil. And once that um, uh, initial flesh is gone, which might take six months, the bones then provide an incredible resource over years for lots of bacteria and all sorts of strange little animals that are adapted to doing that. And I've spent really uh, since being communicated with about a whale fall by the Monterey Bay Aquarium and Research Institute, started to really get engaged with whale falls. And our initial discovery was a particular worm that dissolves the bones to get inside using acid. Uh, and then it, it uses the roots that it grows into the bones. This sounds like a bizarre story, but it's true. Uh, it's called Ozodax, the bone devourer, and they have special bacteria associated with their roots. And they're after not the oil in the bones, but the collagen, the main collagen matrix that all of our bones have. They need to dissolve away, though, the calcium phosphate, the appetite that makes the bone hard to get at that protein, the spongy protein matrix. And they use bacteria in order to do that. Uh, but in addition to those crazy Ozodax worms, we found dozens of new species of crabs, of snails, of worms. And uh, we argue that whales that wash ashore should be towed out to sea whenever possible and sunk uh, because that's the natural place for them to end up rather than what often happens is that they're um, carved up and put into landfill, which then contributes actually methane to the atmosphere. So um, if they're put out to sea, they're broken down naturally and you don't end up with methane going into the atmosphere. Unfortunately, it's expensive usually to tow a whale out to sea and sink it. More expensive often than the cities might have a budget for uh, to, to uh, sink them. So uh, I understand why they're often carved up for landfill, but I really hope that cities will engage more into towing them out to sea. It's super insightful. I didn't realize it as well. But I guess something that can empower us, you know, a different level in terms of thinking about the city to think about some of these, these ethical lenses um, for these issues and having that additional knowledge that helps um, some of the decision making. Uh, unfortunately, we're seeing more and more whales. We're talking about the West Coast of the United States uh, with uh, faster ships and more whales bouncing back after the whaling industries um, of harvesting whales has stopped. Uh, the whale populations are really bouncing back and we're seeing more and more unfortunate ship strikes where the whales are killed by ships and then they wash ashore. Uh, and so um, it's becoming more and more of a problem for the cities to manage. The people, of course, don't like having these whales wash ashore and, and, and decaying. Uh, and I think we really have to develop programs where we can tow, tow them out to sea before they become a real problem for the communities. Super uh, insightful. Thanks again. I I, um, <laughs> I want to make the most of our time. And I, I know a, a curious question that someone asked me, I didn't know the answer to. They said, uh, uh, does everybody at SIO have diving certification? Does everyone who's there dive? And, and you touched on that a little where you said that maybe you didn't do the deep sea stuff, which I know is not diving, but I'm, I'm curious if you could speak to that. Yeah, we, we have a scientific diving program and uh, that's led by Christian McDonald. And uh, scientific diving, in a way, goes back to originating in Scripps and uh, back in the 1950s 
uh, the, there's a special certification you need to do scientific diving and training. So it's the um, uh, beyond just the normal uh, open water certification that most people can get uh, through uh, a dive um, uh, equipment store. And but that training is not too onerous, and so many of the students at Scripps do the training and get certified. You then just need to maintain a regular diving program in order to be allowed to do diving. There are a lot of restrictions in terms of dive planning, the rules in which you must do this uh, for for um, insurance issues. I would say our active diving Scripps has about fourteen hundred people. There's probably a couple of hundred registered and i i'm guessing i'd have to ask christian what our active diver number is but it it's probably in the hundreds and certainly the majority of scripts people uh really do their research in areas that don't accommodate scuba diving now really active scuba diving um mostly is 30 meters or less the top 90 feet of water if with special training you can go deeper although that doesn't happen very commonly at scripts so um, Scripps, though, really works in all of the oceans and in all of the habitats, and, and the average ocean depth is 4,000 metres around the world. And so it's really much of the world's oceans are way beyond um, scuba diving, and it, and it requires other kinds of instruments, um, remote-operated vehicles, automated underwater vehicles or submarines, all sorts of other amazing technology that... Uh, fortunately, in the United States, we're we're able to 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 have access to. Oh, great! No, no thank you so much. This has definitely been a treat, and I think um, really uh, what I had in mind uh, in, in inviting you, um, in really being able to, to to show us some of the cutting edge uh, approaches to engaging the public um, that takes in both cutting edge approaches with technology from imaging to really thinking about motivations and studying the motivations that keep people in, um, to understanding some of the new technology and some of the new biology that you all are dis discovering. And I think really showing us um, how powerful it is when you're able to articulate that in, 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 um, in, a, in a clear way um, that's based on fact uh, and knowledge, but also is, is, is very engaging. I think for those who are in the audience and are looking for, for, for a career similar to yours, even if it's not in marine biology. I wanted to thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, George. It's uh, really a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.